Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. Over the last few years, it seems that king cake is simply on steroids. From January 6th through Mardi Gras Day, it becomes a local obsession which is expanded in design from the original brioche dough ring, decorated with purple, green, and gold sugar, to cakes featuring every kind of filling, both sweet and savory. No one knows more about king cake than Matt Haynes, author of The Big Book of King Cake, a weighty tome that is virtually the Bible on the seasonal topic. We discuss the phenomena with Matt before meeting Martha Gilreath, who I initially discovered between the pages of his book. For Martha, who was formerly a homeless addict, King Cake became redemption as she worked her way into a new sober life. She is such an inspiration. And when it comes to King Cake obsession, there's no one quite like Patrick Bordnick. Every year, Patrick works through dozens and dozens of cakes, rating each one on his Instagram account, with the help of his dogs. Yes, his paw ratings are something else. From four paws to no paws, Patrick's dogs have got you covered before you make the investment. So cut a slice of your favorite and prepare for the sugar rush on this week's Louisiana Eats. My name is Matt Haynes, and I'm the author of The Big Book of King Cake. Sprawling over 300 pages and weighing in at almost five pounds, the definitive Bible of our favorite carnival treat has finally arrived. The Big Book of King Cake meticulously covers the ubiquitous pastry from all angles, from its international history to today's innovations, fueled by a diverse community of Louisiana bakers. While our state's king cake obsession has been building to a fevered frenzy over the last few years, it took Long Island native and first-time author Matt Haynes to realize a king cake companion was long overdue. After living in New Orleans for almost a decade, in 2017, Matt found himself nursing a broken heart from a recent breakup. His antidote? King cake. And he vowed to sample every version available. Though he didn't quite meet his goal, Matt got pretty close, all the while maintaining an online spreadsheet where he logged the style and flavor of each variety he tried. As Matt explained, 
This experience helped lay the foundation for him to become a writer and publish the big book of King Cake five years later. Back in 2017, I wasn't even a writer at that point. I was just going to a king cake party. And my personality is one in which I wanted to bring the very best king cake to that party. I wanted to win it. And so I started to look at different lists. And I saw this one list of top 10 king cakes. And I was like, oh, those look interesting. Let me put them on a spreadsheet. And then I found another list of top 10 king cakes. I put those on a spreadsheet. And all of a sudden, my spreadsheet had 100 plus king cakes on it. (laughs) And that year, I was like, well, it's a long carnival season. And so I was like, I'm going to try to eat them all. And I didn't, but I got through like 88 of them. Most of it was just me driving around to different bakeries and and begging them to give me one slice so I didn't have to eat an entire uh, king cake 88 times. (laughs) (laughs) And I was had the spreadsheet. And I remember on Fat Tuesday, I was uh, walking around kind of following St. Anne's in the Bywater Marigny. And I looked at my spreadsheet and there were like 400 and something people logged onto it. Um, So that was kind of exciting. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. And I started to, I was like, oh, let me try. I've always wanted to be a writer. Let me just see how I do. So slowly but surely, I picked up more gigs. And around carnival season each year, I knew a lot about king cakes. So I'd write a bunch of those articles. And after that, I thought, hmm, I wonder when the last time somebody wrote a book about this was. And then much to my surprise, uh, nobody had ever written a book about it except for, you know, a children's book here or a children's book there. Right. So I thought maybe I should do it. I loved that you brought up king cake parties because that certainly is what I grew up doing. Every Friday night, mm-hmm. there used to be these sort of Friday night mixers where the Ursuline girls would get to hang out with some boys and eat king cake. It was a big part of our social life. Yeah, it seems so interesting. I mean, it's obviously something that now there's king cake parties thrown by, you know, everybody here. And I know that in schools, they still have king cake parties every Friday, it seems like. But what I didn't realize until I started researching for the book is that king cake parties are really what transitioned king cakes into the everyday home. So before that, it was mostly like a Creole thing or a thing you'd find in Mardi Gras cruise. But then slowly but surely, and mostly because of of young kids as a way to socialize, they started to, they would meet at somebody's house and somebody would bring the king cake. There'd be a bean or a baby in one of them. And then whoever found it would then have to host the next party. And that's what transitioned king cake from a uh, Christmas time thing to a carnival time thing because, okay, then the next week somebody's responsible for bringing the next king cake and then the next week and then the next week. And so it's something that would go on for quite some time. Let's talk about the fev versus the baby versus the bean. Mm -hmm. What do you have to say about that? Well, it seems like it all started with the bean. And so the bean, a fava bean, was very typical in your ancient Roman Saturnalia cake, which seems to be the original version of our king cake. And so we, and we still see beans to this day. So it's not like that tradition has, has died out. And the, and the bean is very symbolic for fertility, um, which is all tied to, you know, king cake is in this time of season getting towards springtime. Fertility is a really big part of the symbolism around that. So this Fev thing, it's, it's like a cult thing in France, certainly. Huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think uh, even here now, so these Fevs are these really ornately decorated, tiny, about the size of a uh, maybe a little bit bigger than a king cake plastic baby. Originally, they might be a crown. Uh, Now they can be anything. In France, they come in all shapes and sizes. They have some uh, that are like related to the Kama Sutra. They have some that are related to the, uh, the World Cup winning French soccer team. Certain artists will create them specifically for the, it is really a, a phenomenon, and they've got this word now, fevophile, are people who collect, yeah, are people who collect fevs. 
Well, I learned so much in your book. I had no idea that King Cake was so international Mm -hmm. and um, available and a part of the culture of so many countries. Yeah, and and so literal too, like almost all of them translate to King's Cake or King Cake or the Cake of Kings or something like that. And so um, I found bakers, I found people from those countries in New Orleans and convinced them to make a cake for me. So somebody from the Swiss American Society, somebody from the Greek church uh, along Bayou St. John, uh, all of these different places. And so we've got king cakes in the book from northern France and southern France, from Spain and Mexico, from Greece and Cyprus, from South Germany and Switzerland. Um, and how were they similar and how were they different? So I think the biggest similarity with all of them is they all have something uh, hidden inside, and the person who finds uh, that in their cake would get usually some sort of good fortune. Uh, though uh, Portugal is funny because they acknowledge, I think, what a lot of New Orleanians feel is like, wait, why is this good luck exactly <laughs> that I have to buy the next king cake? And so they actually <laughs> translate it to bad luck. And so they have a saying uh, that actually like you basically, oh, great, I found the bean. Kind of like this is not good luck. <laughs> oh, so that that could go any time during the year, huh? If that's an it's an expression, it's a colloquial Yeah, yeah, they would expression. use it all exactly right. Yep. Oh, and, that's great. Mm-hmm. I found the bean. For the most part. I think the similarities are they're circular, they've got something hidden inside, Uh, they're typically colorful, a lot of times with fruit and and nuts, though here in Louisiana, obviously we've changed that with the colored sugar. Well, you know, we um, got our big translation here in New Orleans, I think, with McKenzie's. Mm -hmm. What place do you see that the McKenzie King Cake has? Yeah, the way that I see it is, so um, starting with like interviews with the McKenzie family, when they think back to that time, they say that they had only sold in a carnival season, they were selling a dozen, you know, a half really? dozen cakes. That's it in like the 1930s and 40s. So um, it was McKenzie's that kind of put in our mind, this is what a king cake looks like. And then everything that's happened since McKenzie's has been um, moving away from that thing. But that's still our, our um, like our North Star, I guess. Well, it's very funny how king cake has become a flavor. I I really liked your sort of postscript about king cake mania. And um, I also loved that um, Debbie Does Doberge makes a very clear distinction because she's not calling what she does a king cake. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you can definitely get yourself into trouble. She said she does not want to start any fights with anybody. She does a dobage cake, which is also a very traditional New Orleans cake. It's probably the second most famous cake in New Orleans. It's got uh, you know several layers, and and she's very skilled at it. And so why not create a... um, because I think one might look at it and say, well, that's just king cake colored. That's just Mardi Gras colored. But it's not really. It's also got those flavors, the cinnamon, the vanilla. Um, and so it does also taste a lot like something across between a king cake and a, and a dobage cake. And, and at the end of the book, I tried to have these things that are they king cake? Are they not? I feel like I tried to push it to the limit. So probably by the end, you're probably going to say, no, these aren't. But you know, like a lot of the king cakes in this book, if we presented them to a New Orleanian 50 years ago, they'd say that most of them were not king cake. Only Mackenzie's was king cake. So, you know, they would were... think you were a Martian if yes, you right. presented this to most people 50 years ago. <laughs> yes. Because now there are king cake cocktails, there's king cake vodka, there's somebody makes a beer. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. Actually, multiple places make uh, king cake beer. Did you drink it? Um, I did not get to drink this one because it was uh, just to get a, a picture for the can. It was just filled with water, I believe. Uh, uh, but I have had some of the king cake beers in the past, and they're good. You know, when you're sitting on a on Fat Tuesday and you're sitting out at the parade route, it's refreshing. It's really nice and pairs well, and it's uh, you know feels helps get you in the spirit. I think. I think that it's incredible that we have king cake flavor. Just as for generations, we've recognized wedding cake flavor Mm -hmm. because cinnamon didn't mean king cake to me as a child. It was just I just wanted the piece that had that maraschino cherry on on that uh, Mackenzie's king cake. Yeah, I, I really liked that candied cherry, but there was no cinnamon. I know. It's funny you mentioned the cherry because I had about half the people I spoke to were like, I do not know why they put the cherry in there. I did not like the cherry. And you got half the people who were like, that's the piece that I wanted. I love um, the cherry. Yeah. I absolutely <laughs> do. So what do you think stretches reality most with King Cake Mania, Matt? I think that the, so that we've got a King Cake charcuterie board here. Um, and that's from um, a bakery in Slidell. And she um, she has, I mean, she has king cake on a stick. She has king cake nuggets that she can dip in. She has this king cake charcuterie board. She has Halloween king cakes with a cleaver sticking out the top. And for her, um, she just wants to create as many different ways for somebody to enjoy king cake as they possibly can. And so, you know, I, I, I think it's a, I think the more to me, the more the merrier and let people decide what they want. There's also a king cake soapier. Um, which, uh, you know, is fragrance. Smells like cinnamon, huh? Yeah, right. And so people like cinnamon, so why not? Well, the pandemic seems to have brought king cake entrepreneurs out of the woodwork. Mm -hmm. That was something that I found fascinating, the number of pop-up cottage industry entrepreneurs that you covered in the book with king cake. So I think uh, that's a really interesting part of king cake in 2000. 21 and 22 and beyond probably now is that you had all these people who worked in the service industry a lot as bakers, but then in the case of 10 cent baking, she was um, she was a bartender uh, who had a hobby of baking. And then, you know, because of the pandemic shutting down the service industry, a lot of these people had more time and they decided to put their creativity to work in a new way and created king cakes again that that matched their tastes. So in the case of 10 cent baking, she decided, well, I love making cocktails with flowers. I have a pretty good handle on where to get really beautiful, you know, flowers from from local flower farms here in New Orleans. And so she's incorporated that into hurricane cakes, which I think is a really unique spin on it. The interesting thing that I came out of the book with is that this is obviously an aspirational thing. Yeah, I think that now king cakes are, It's an, if you own a bakery, it's almost expected that what's your king cake going to be? Something that I think that I thought was interesting, because at first this book was going to really be about the cakes. This was going to be a book about king cake. And then I quickly figured out, oh, this is way more interesting if it's a book about the people who make the king cakes. And so I transitioned the book over to that. And it happened fast. As soon as I started talking, I think our first photo shoot was at Tartine uh, with Kara Henderson. And I was like, oh, my God, her story is far more interesting. This cake is beautiful and it's delicious, but her story is the amazing part about this. I think people think of king cake as... For some people, it's about the ingredients specifically. It's like, oh, a king cake to me has to be, um, has icing or doesn't have icing or has these three colored sugars or doesn't have them. For other people, the king cake is about the traditions, the family that goes around it. You know, so Hugo Montero over at uh, Casa Borrega, he's from Mexico originally. He said he remembers every January 6th, 
his parents uh, bringing in the the king cake, their king cake, and it just brightening up his eyes. And then he's got two boys now who were born here in New Orleans. And so for Hugo, um, he moved to New Orleans. He loves it here, but he didn't really connect with the traditions that much until he brought his son to a Mackenzie's, um, you know, a couple of decades ago and seeing his son's face light up. And it reminded him of his own face lighting up when he said, he's like, this is what I must have looked like. And so seeing that, he was like, wow, I, this, is a, this is the most familiar thing that I've experienced here in New Orleans. I want to put my own stamp on this somehow at my restaurant. And so they created the Taco King cake. They serve tacos there. He found a, kind of a mold that they can do to create it. They're, it's beautifully colored. It tastes delicious. It's got the babies on it. For Hugo, he could seem to seemingly care less about what is actually in the king cake. For him, it's about the tradition and the feeling that it gave him. And so I think um, it's interesting. We're in a time right now where some people want king cake and most foods, I think, to be very traditional. Other people are willing to push it to the limit. And I think it's fun to see these two different groups kind of battle out and find something in the middle. That was Matt Haynes, author of The Big Book of King Cake. Next week, we'll bring you the second part of our two-part conversation with Matt, exploring the more recent history of King Cake. Since debuting The Big Book of King Cake last year, Matt has a new book. The Little Book of King Cake is designed for younger readers who follow the story of a third grader named Miley who has to choose a king cake to bring to school. Goodness knows, with hundreds of varieties to choose from these days, that's a daunting task. His entertaining new book clearly illustrates why king cake is so important. You can find what Matt's up to by checking his Instagram, or by visiting him online at matthaineswrites.com. Coming up next, we meet king cake baker Martha Gilry who triumphed over the odds to make a sweeter life for herself at her pop-up bakery, Nolita. Louisiana Eats returns with her story after the break. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Crystal Hot Sauce, now celebrating 100 years of hot sauce deliciousness. Always made with just three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways, Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. 
now celebrating their centennial by donating one million bowls of beans to Second Harvest Food Bank. What a way to say thank you to the community they call home. On this week's show, we're exploring all things king cake in Louisiana. Before the break, we spoke with the author of the big book of king cake, Matt Haynes. When Matt first started working on the project, he thought the main subject would be the king cakes themselves. But he quickly realized that it was much more interesting to focus on the bakers behind the confections, telling the story of how each baker's history led them to create their own special cake. Out of all the bakers Matt profiled in his book, the story of our next guest captivated me the most. My name is Martha Gilreath, and my business is Nolita. For Martha Gilreath, king cake is more than just a seasonal treat. It represents a fresh start. These days, you'll find Martha online at her pop-up bakery, Nolita, serving up her signature king cakes made with orange blossom water and satsuma zest. But she had to overcome huge odds to get there. Martha joined us in the studio to tell us about her journey. So my dad is from the West Bank and my mom is from Baton Rouge, and I grew up on the North Shore for a while. Um, And somewhere along the way in uh, my early 20s, I got very, very lost and was in active addiction, drug addiction, for the better part of 16 years. Uh, And I came back home to New Orleans in 2015 and ended up homeless, um, living under the Claiborne Bridge uh, by Lee Circle. And I continued that way of life uh, through the winters and summers, and it was miserable. And it occurred to me that I was not going to die from this disease. I was going to probably wake up every day for the next 30 years and live like this. And that was something I couldn't do anymore. Uh, I went to Charleston, and I got treatment. And when I was about five months sober... I'd always loved to cook. I grew up in the kitchen with my mom cooking for all six kids and, you know, just good old Creole food. And I loved, I loved cooking um, at the rehab facility I was in. And I got to see what that did for people, that little moment of escapism, you know, when they're, when they're in these really dark places and there's not a lot of hope. Um, for some reason, everybody appreciates a treat. And so I decided... I want to do this, but I want to be the best at it. <laughs> so I started looking up culinary schools, and I discovered Noki, which they had opened in New Orleans. And it took a lot of pausing and a lot of seeking direction to decide to move back to New Orleans and uh, pursue that. You know, I was very newly sober and full of a lot of fear. But I applied, and I got a scholarship. Well, you entered the pastry program there. Why were you drawn to pastry, Martha? I think that pastry, there's something so magical about the science behind it. It's, you know, you see these wonderful, fantastic, fabulous desserts, and you don't realize how meticulous in nature they really are. And 
I had started developing those practices in my life. Uh, patience, following direction, rules. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and it challenged me. You know, I, I could stay on the culinary side of things and taste things and figure it out. Or I could apply this discipline that I never had. And so it was challenging. You, you had a particular cake moment before you came back to New Orleans. I did. I um, was in a treatment center, and there was a new resident. He was turning 21 in treatment, which I imagine was very not fun for him. And, you know, it's the small things, the small ways we try to celebrate each other. And I found out that he loved cheesecake. And so I made a cheesecake, and I'll never forget, I walked outside to smoke a cigarette, um, and it was dark, and the windows to the dining room were illuminated and I looked in there and he was sitting with a few of his friends and it was the first time I'd seen him smile oh and in that moment it just clicked for me this is this is what I want to do is to make people smile when did the irony of the school's location and your homeless experience when did that hit you it, it was actually not during orientation because I had parked somewhere else, but they gave us suggestions for parking during the school year. And one of them was right under the Crescent City Connection. And, you know, it's 6 o'clock in the morning and I'm trying to park and I pull up. And it's the little lot that they had suggested was the exact location where I had slept for so long. And on the other side of where I parked, there was still a row of tents there. And it was extremely overwhelming and gratifying. And it continued to be a healing process throughout me going to school because every morning I would park there for, and for about 10 seconds, there's a choice every morning. So it was, but I also think that that's the universe bringing things full circle for me. I understand that when it came time to graduate, you were the class valedictorian? It was. I didn't even know they had valedictorians <laughs> over there. Tell me about that experience. Um, it was surreal. It was surreal because I can't tell you the last time I finished something in my life that I had any follow through, whether it was being a part of my family or just going to work. Um I'd never, I hadn't seen anything through in 16 years, 17 years. And the very first week of school, I remember sitting in that pastry lab and thinking, I cannot do this. I was so uncomfortable and so terrified of failing again. And so I just showed up every day. I showed up and I listened and I asked for help and I helped people that needed help. And then I got asked to step outside of class one day and Chef Miller told me to write a speech and I, I paused and I said, okay, I think I know where this is going, but I'm not sure, so please tell me. Um, and it was a great experience because at that graduation, I was able to share what food is to me, which might be different than it is to some people. And so it was very raw, but uh, very gratifying. And And what is food to you, Martha? Food to me at its base level is survival. It is, you know, it's a part, it's a necessity as much as water and warmth. And to know that on a very real level, I, I was able to be placed in an, a place of appreciation where 
somewhere along my journey at Nogi, food transitioned from being survival to being of service. And and I think that's what Nogi taught me is when you can provide food in service of an event, our memory, our first season, like Mardi Gras, it becomes something completely different and it becomes a celebration. And so it kind of hand in hand, that transition went through what I was going through with my own life. I no longer was eating to survive. I was eating to celebrate. When did you decide to pursue King Cake as a business model? And tell me the story about the cake and how it came to be. Well, uh, before Christmas break, uh, my wonderful mentor and chef at Noki, Zach Miller, had, you know, mentioned if any of you ever wanted to make king cakes on the side, you know, just he's always encouraging us to try new things. So I was in Charleston for Christmas, and about five days before carnival season started, I said, why why not? Like, I think I've got an idea. And so I contacted one of my fellow students, London LaHost, and uh, I said, hey, you want to make king cakes? And she said, sure. So we sat down at a picnic table and I draw up an LLC and, and we just figure out, figure it out along the way. And what was very neat is we said, we'll deliver. Yeah. Because no one wanted to leave their houses. And so we'll just, and we had no idea what we're doing. Um, so it was a trip. This Mardi Gras, you've decided to leave the the world of the the pastry chef in an institutional setting. Um, you've decided to leave that behind. Tell me about uh, making the decision to keep that Nolita going, and 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 what's the future? Well, um, you know, my my partner in the beginning, she had she moved to Boston, is doing fantastic up there. Um, and I wasn't sure, you know, I thought I wanted to pursue this and I became a pastry chef at a restaurant and I was actually having coffee with my mentor one day and he said, I envy your lack of social filter um, because the desserts, the pastries that I want to make, um, I made one for Nalfi last year and won a gold medal and I just, I, what was it? It, <laughs> it was a play, ironically, on a Ramos Gin Fizz and it had gold pop rocks and juniper meringue and gin compressed peaches, which I couldn't try because of the gin. Um, but I I have this need to create these wild, weird, and witchy things that don't make any sense until you try them. And I, I don't want to spend the next 10 years making them for somebody else. And so I decided... After I'd interviewed with Matt Haynes for the Big Book of King Cake, and once I saw the book, I said, this is what I'm going to do. And I called my parents and said, this is what I'm going to do, and I'm going to do every bit of it. I'm, You know, I'm all in. All the cards. At this point in my life, I have truly lost everything before. And so whatever I'm risking right now is, is not, in comparison, that scary. Um, it is still terrifying, you know, uh, but it's exciting, and I feel like I could chase this thing for the next 25 years and still be excited about it. Martha Gilreath of New Orleans pop-up bakery, Nolita. To learn more, go to nolitakingcakes.com. 
Martha is now the chef at the Chicory House in New Orleans Garden District. Stop by to meet Martha and sample her king cake and so much more. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. What is the true origin of our beloved king cake? Stay tuned, and we'll tell you the whole story when we come right back. Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, now doing for chicken what they've always done for fish. Fried chicken tenders, wings, sandwiches, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry has you covered with a mix specially for chicken. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, located 40 minutes north of New Orleans French Quarter along the shores of Lake Pontchartrain. The delicious Tammany taste culinary scene and abundance of soft adventure attractions are among the many reasons to love the North Shore's charming communities. Winter on the North Shore brings king cake flavored must-haves and Mardi Gras festivities. Find details on upcoming events, itinerary suggestions, and more at louisiananorthshore.com. This week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What are the true origins of our beloved king cake? Fat Matt Haynes sure taught this king cake lover a big lesson. Most people believe our king cake's origins to be French. But according to the Big Book of King Cake, the original king cake can be traced back to ancient Rome's Saturnalia Festival, which was held every year on December 17th. This ancient pagan festival honored the Romans' agricultural god, Saturn. Part of the festivities included a cake with a bean baked inside. And yes, when that cake was sliced and distributed, the lucky bean recipient would become king for a day. Sound familiar? Apparently, after the fall of the Roman Empire in 476 AD, European Catholics borrowed the Romans' cake tradition, making it part of their Epiphany celebration. So there you have it. We actually have the Romans to thank for our delicious king cake season. It's an indisputable fact that king cake, no matter when or where you eat it, makes for some good 
Louisiana Eats. Patrick Bordnick is dean of the Tulane School of Social Work in New Orleans. As part of his position, Patrick studies topics like substance abuse and mental health. But when it's king cake season, you'll find the behavioral scientist focused on a very different field of research, namely king cakes. Nearly every day from Twelfth Night to Mardi Gras, and sometimes twice a day, Patrick opens a brand new king cake box and samples what's inside. He then rates each cake on a scale of 1 to 5, factoring in quality, flavor, and freshness, and posts his conclusions on Instagram. In a typical year, Patrick taste tests an average of 50 different king cakes. Sounds like a tough job, I know. But the good professor is not alone in his research. He works closely with three assistants, eager to share their expertise. Here's Patrick reading a post he wrote reviewing a king cake from Maurice French Pastries. Stella and the little jackals, that would be Herman and Gigi, are now circling whenever I get home with a new cake. Gotta love Pavlovian conditioning. Stella loved the cake and the Chantilly cream and rates the cake four out of five. Four out of five paws. Four out of five paws. you got to have paws. <laughs> the paw rating's pretty good. Yeah. Herman could not figure out what to eat first, and Gigi swapped in and ate it. Gigi gives her piece and Herman's piece four paws as well. Patrick gave the cake 4.5 of five, just higher than his three king cake rating dogs, or two of them anyway. Herman didn't get a piece, and everyone was, oh, I feel so bad for Herman. Believe me, with 50 king cakes, Herman is going to get his due coming up and probably take something from Gigi. So I'm creating monsters, I think, as this progresses. Patrick talked to us about his king cake obsession and how it led to this collaboration with his canine companions. So again, this, is, this sounds like a New Orleans story that I just could make up, but it's true. So I'm, I'm not a huge sweet eater, believe it or not. I like something that's really good. If it, it has to be really good and well-made for me to eat it. And so uh, one day during king cake season, I brought a king cake home. And we used to have a Great Dane called Olive. 140 pounds, gigantic Scooby-Doo. And I was sitting, cutting a piece, as we all do, because you have to have the knife in the box. I actually have two knives in the box. So I don't <laughs> want to start a controversy, but you have to have, you, you need the tool for what you need. And so Olive's just sitting there patiently, and she would never go on the counters. She would never do anything. And she was just sitting there staring at me with these big Great Dane eyes. And I looked, and I said, do you want a piece of king cake? And she just kind of looked up at me. I handed it to her, and she would never aggressive. She just opened her mouth and took it and walked away. And I just burst out laughing. And my wife, Allison, sitting there, and she goes, the dog likes king cake. I said, well, how do you not? Right? So I was sitting there. So it just kind of started, and then I thought, this would be bizarre. Why don't I start posting a review, you know, kind of tongue-in-cheek, and then give Olive's review. Of king cakes. Yeah. Strangely enough, everyone thinks, well, the dog will eat anything. Not when it comes to king cakes. They're very particular. I laugh because I'll if, if I don't like one, there may be something that's not right or whatever. 
The dogs usually concur. It's very interesting. And so I've seen them take pieces out into the yard and just drop it. And I thought, what are they doing? And then I walk out there and I step on a piece of king cake. Olive passed um, about a couple years ago. So I wanted to carry on the tradition because people during, we lead up to January and people start saying, are you going to do your reviews? You're going to do your reviews. I'm like, oh, why not? So now I've got Stella, Gigi, and Herman, our three other dogs that do it. And they're the same way. Like Stella will take a piece and drop it or she'll turn around and give me a look like I'm not eating that. And so I really start with, you know, it is it is funny because people keep saying, well, dogs will eat anything. And I said, I've tried. And they literally are on target with some of their reviews. Um, sometimes they like a little sweeter things. But if it's overly cinnamon or bitter or anything that's not right, they just have a vibe. I can't explain. It's a New Orleans thing. I don't know what to say. What are the breeds of these dogs? Or who, who's in the pack? So I've got Stella, who's a, a pit bull mix rescue. We've got Gigi, who's the only planned pregnancy. She's a Shih Tzu. Um, and then we got Herman, another sort of rescue from a family member who's a Havanese. Do they all agree generally? Or do you sometimes have one dissenting vote on a king cake judging? I'm going to say it's the Shih Tzu Gigi. Gigi will eat just about anything. I don't think her palate is as refined as the other. I can't believe I just said that. But really, <laughs> she will eat anything. And I, when I refer to her sometimes as the Velociraptor T-Rex Shih Tzu, if you have a Shih Tzu, you know I've had my fingers nipped. She's not trying to be aggressive, but she loves and she'll dance. She's fallen, you know, done backflips. You know, it's very funny. She tries to fight now with the other dogs to get their peace. So we have to be mindful. Oh, yikes. But it, it's literally, I laugh about Pavlovian conditioning. That gets back to my behavioral science roots. They hear me. They see the box when I come in. And even when I say the word king cake, they're conditioned because they know what's happening. So that's my little spin on it for science. So it's just kind of funny. Before you even began the review, what was your average king cake consumption seasonally like? Oh, I don't know. Probably maybe five throughout the season, just here or there. You know, just occasionally go and say, I'll take this. I'll I really didn't think much about it. And where has this obsession led you? This year, I'll get up to probably over 50. It'll be the first year I'm over 50. So tell me how a review is developed. So I kind of start with the review. I like to you know, try to create a theme each year of something and find king cakes that no one else has heard of maybe smaller bakeries, some, you know, places. And then I rate some of the, you know, traditional ones that we think about because everyone wants to know what's going on. And, and they're always consistent and always good. And so we just kind of go on. And then I find ones that are unique or different. This year I've started discount king cakes. Now I, I'm taking some heat from it. However, not everyone can go and spend 35 or 45 or I've spent $80 on a king cake, but we're not going to talk about it. Okay. <laughs> it's so... I try to get some. So I'm looking for people that, you know, under $10. And there's some decent ones. What do you recommend? Um, actually, it's very strange is Winn-Dixie and Bromart has two that are not gourmet, but they're solid. You know, I mean, they taste good. The dough's cooked well. The icing's not overly sweet. They're just a plain king cake. That, what's the price range? Um, usually Winn-Dixie has won $5 this year. And Bromart has around 10 to 12. And then if they stuff them a little bit more. But you asked about how do I go about doing it? And people say, well, how do you eat so many king cakes? And, and you know, I, well, I run. But I said, I really don't just eat piece after piece. I take a piece out. 
I separate all the pieces. I try each and every flavor, and then I try them all together. Because as we know, a really good chef or pastry chef, it's the combination of the flavors, which is tough to get. But also I like to talk to people and say, well, I really love the cream cheese, but not this or something like that. So I really take the time to do this, and it, 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 it's just fun. So I really have developed my reviews over the years and disagree with a lot of popular things that people are now IMing me and saying, I agree with you in silence. Because, <laughs> But I always want to remember that chefs can have a bad day. Something can happen. It happens, right? So I try not to ever be cruel or anything in the reviews and say, you know, maybe they had an off week. I've had better ones from them or this variety. So I try to bring it around that it's not out to, to create havoc for somebody. It's really to talk about it. But if somebody's not good three years in a row, they're getting it because that's just not right. And I don't, I will never have two no. or three of them again. And exactly. <laughs> you, should, you just can't. And I'm not going to ask you about those, but what's your favorite so far? Oh, man. Okay. So... I try to do categories, and I will give you two. And one, Nolita. This is a just a plain king cake, satsuma essence. I took it home and cut it, and it was the first king cake I wanted to just eat the way it was. And then there's a little sign that said you could warm it for 10 to 15 seconds, which I never do, but I'm like, okay, I'm going to try it this time. It was even better. And more importantly, two days later, it was sitting on the counter, and I'm smelling satsuma, and I'm like, what do we, do we get satsumas? And I open up the box. It is as if I just bought it. It had the, bag, the plastic bag on it. And I cut into it, and the satsuma essence and everything just developed even more. Literally, I sat there with a piece of it and got a really nice bourbon. And it was like this king cake bourbon mix. And I'm like, I live in New Orleans, right? You, know, you kind of do that. You live in New Orleans where some people would have that bourbon and king cake for breakfast. And, of course, that beautiful king cake is from our friend Martha Gilreath. And she just rocks the king cake world in my book, too. So what's number two? Number two is a filled king cake. And this is one that I happened upon last year. It's Maurice's French Bakery in Metairie. And actually, Allison found it. And it's their Ponchatoula strawberry. And yeah, I, fillings go back and forth. And so my daughter just uh, was having a 17th birthday. So Allison goes, well, I think I'm going to order the large. So if you check my Instagram, you'll see this thing came, I think it was two and a half, three feet across. It must have been eight inches thick and probably six inches wide. Beautiful brioche, Chantilly cream an almost vanilla pudding on the bottom. <laughs> and you look at it and you say, this has got to be just cloyingly sweet. I can't eat it. It's not. It's real whipped cream. It's developed. The chef there knows the flavors, knows what to combine. The brioche had a nice crunch on the outside. It just, I literally ate probably a four and a half inch piece. And that was my dinner. Because <laughs> um, I wasn't, and then I went and ran five miles. <laughs> Later that evening, I'll just confess. Well, Patrick, I must say, you are my kind of New Orleanian. Thanks so much for coming to see us. Thank you. This has been such a joy, and I can check it off my bucket list. Dog lover and king cake obsessive, Patrick Bordnick. For his day job, Patrick serves as the dean of the Tulane University School of Social Work. 
You can find his king cake reviews and some adorable dog photos on Instagram. You'll find a link on our website, poppytooker.com. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where over a decade of Louisiana Eats is available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. And don't forget to rate us on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta, handcrafted in Louisiana just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerleau and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producers Blake Longlinay and Steve Himmelfarb, and to our business manager and social media maven Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. (laughs) 